0: We are talking today about something that might sound arrogant for some pastor to say, I'm going to talk to you about the most important message you'll ever hear. (laughs) But that's not arrogance, especially when you understand that this is coming from the Apostle Paul, and he is reminding people that he's been talking with in his letter for weeks now, because we've been taking it piece by piece, and then we took that little chunk out for Advent. We're back in 1 Corinthians again, And we're understanding now where Paul is coming from, because he's been trying to give lots of corrections to the church in Corinth, but now he's bringing them to the so that. He's giving them all those corrections, understanding that he's getting to the part in his message to them through this letter when he says, all of this is necessary so that you can remain focused on the most important message of all. I told you before that when I was 16, I took junior life-saving course at a municipal pool in Phoenix, Arizona, and I became a junior lifeguard. Um, It's funny that they called us junior lifeguards. I guess that's because they didn't want to actually think that we were old enough to do anything worthy of being called a real lifeguard. I know we've had several lifeguards as young people in our church, and so you'll understand about some of the training that you go through when you get ready for that. One of the things that we continued to get bombarded with by our instructors, who had a lot of experience, was the most important thing, they kept saying this to us, the most important thing you need to remember is don't lose your focus. Don't lose your focus on the pool, keep your eyes moving at all times, always be checking your zones, don't allow yourself to get distracted, because he knew that 16 and 17 year old kids could be very easily distracted. If two lifeguards were there on the same side of the pool and they started to engage in a conversation about what they did last weekend, it could become deadly. And they knew that. I watched a special a couple of years ago about one of these indoor water parks and how they trained their lifeguards. And that's one of the things that they just drill into them. Don't get distracted. In fact, they keep the lifeguards moving and they would walk the sides of the pool so that they weren't just myopic, because you can get to that point when you're just staring straight ahead and your mind wanders, and you can be seeing something peripherally that your brain doesn't really check in on. It doesn't alert you that somebody is in distress, and you're looking right at the water, but you don't see them. So they said you want to keep moving, and you want to keep focused. So the most important thing is don't lose our focus. That's what Paul is saying to us here. Paul's most important message comes to us here in chapter 15, and I'm going to read this to you. It's the first 11 verses of that chapter. And Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And this is what you believed. Paul's most important message was so simple that it cannot be missed, and he wanted to take us right back to it. And it's what we celebrated a few moments ago in communion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had been making his readers aware of these problems, these dysfunctions in the church in Corinth, there was favoritism. Some people favored certain leaders over other leaders, and then they developed factions around some of those small groups. They had their cliques. They had secular influence that was making its way into the church back then as well. Paganism was rampant, and some people were trying to advocate for pagan worship practices, some of which included immoral acts. And Paul said, this can't be. You have to maintain your focus on what is true, and that is God's grace is what saves us, and we need to make sure that it's transforming us completely so that we can live within his boundaries because he knows what's best for us. There was selfish behavior. He talked about their regular gatherings when they're supposed to celebrate and fellowship with one another and eat together. People who had lots of power and lots of money would sit at the best tables, and they would bring lavish banquets and wonderful feasts, And they would eat it all amongst themselves, those who were in their clique, while others were going hungry. He says, this can't be either. You're forgetting that the reason we're gathering is so that we can remember what Christ gave to us, how much he sacrificed for us, so that we can take on the same mind that Christ had and think more highly of others than we think of ourselves. All of this is coming along because Paul knows that everything around these dysfunctions will create a barrier that can hinder the love of God from flowing freely through us as believers so that others can see Jesus more clearly. We're creating distortions that people have to overcome when we behave the way the church in Corinth was behaving. There's a lot of distortions in our world today that have to be overcome so that people can actually see what the real Jesus really looks like. Because unfortunately, a lot of people have acted the way the people were acting in Corinth. And his message was not, do better. You just keep working on these areas and you keep doing better, folks. He didn't say that. I'm quoting again something that I quoted last week because I think it fits and it's a reminder. It's from that poet, Carl Sandburg, who said, there's an eagle in me that wants to soar and there's a hippopotamus in me that wants to wallow in the mud. That is a contemporary way of saying that there is the old nature the nature that wants to do what I want to do, the sinful nature, Paul calls it sometimes the fleshly nature. It wants immediate gratification at all costs. It doesn't really want to be led by a good shepherd. It wants to wander off and do whatever the other sheep might be doing if the grass is sweeter on the other side. And Paul knows that simply trying to push away or suppress the hippo in us is not going to work. Just trying to overcome the fleshly nature in our own strength isn't going to do it. We need a vicarious death, not a do better morality. A do better religion results in boasting in our own efforts. He says it's by grace that we're saved. Otherwise we'd start boasting about our own self-righteousness. That self-righteousness where Paul in another place referred to as filthy rags. There can also become sort of a superiority complex that develops in people who start to check all the boxes. We start to become just like modern day Pharisee. If we think I'm doing so much better than those sinners over there, that now I can become the judge and the jury, and I can point my finger at them and say, you need to do better because I am doing better. And he says, doesn't work that way. We can read Paul's other words in Romans in 3.23 and know that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. He's taking us right back to Christianity 101, (laughs) right back to the basics. This is the primer, Jesus' death and burial and Jesus' resurrection. Very simple. He keeps this message so simple because he wants to make sure that we're staying focused on the main thing that would keep us from drifting into these areas that become distortions to other people and become deadly for those who drift. First of all, the death and burial, what does it mean? These things demand a meaning and we need to understand what Paul's talking about in these first 11 verses of chapter 15. Well, there's a key phrase there that helps us find where we're gonna get this meaning. According to the scriptures, we see that in verses three and four, that shows us that there are things that were fulfilled. These things were found in the Old Testament You hear that constantly through my preaching, especially when I'm preaching about Paul, the apostle, because he's constantly looking back at the Old Testament and showing how this Old Testament adds meaning to the New Testament. It could be easy for some to look at the killing of an innocent man and to say, yeah, it was a tragedy that this guy named Jesus, he was a bit of a teacher, pretty good teacher. Some of the things he said were really intriguing, but he was innocent and he got killed too bad. If we reduce the gospel to that, we've missed the whole point. We need to see some of the things that gave his death meaning, including the prophet Isaiah who said, the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. His death was for atonement. It was for the payment of sin. That's the meaning. That's what we need to gravitate toward. Jesus' death was on purpose, and it was for us. The death and burial means that he died so that we could have new life. We can see this in 1 John 3, 5. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. In fact, the more we read of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles in the New Testament, the more we can see that it had to be through Jesus because he was the sinless one. Only a sinless sacrifice would do to take away the sins of the world. Only someone who is eternal could solve the eternal problem because our sin would last eternally in punishment aside from him. The meaning of Jesus' death, atonement. His death is all about the atonement of sin for both you and me because all of us have fallen short. And then the resurrection. What does that mean? means that Jesus was taking on an enemy far more powerful than the Assyrian army or the Babylonian army or the Roman army. Those are great enemies, and it would have been powerful. And if Jesus had become a military leader, uh, the likes of which he was named after, somebody like Joshua, and if he had mustered a huge army on the part of Israel and some of their allies, and if they had taken on some of their enemies locally over in the Levant, in the Middle East. And if they had won several good strong battles back then so that Israel would be a strong nation again, their real enemy, the biggest enemy, the most long lasting enemy would still exist. And that enemy is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the eternal penalty. If Jesus had conquered the local, temporal, human enemies, death would still linger. For the wages of sin is death. That's the result of sin in the world. But, and this is the good news part of the bad news, good news part of the the gospel. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's the proof of the resurrection? Paul gives it to us right here in these first 11 verses. Eyewitnesses. These were downhearted, disillusioned, doubting disciples. Talk about the two guys on the road to Emmaus. We talk about Thomas. We talk about people gathered in an upper room. They were totally depressed because this just wasn't working out the way they had thought it was supposed to work out. And these people knew the difference between resuscitation and resurrection. You don't have to read very many medical reports about what would have happened in a crucifixion, especially after all the scourging that Jesus had endured. He didn't swoon, he was dead. Which puts the resurrection in a class all its own when it comes to a miracle. I mean, these people had seen miracles. Many of these people who are writing in the New Testament had seen Jesus feed 5,000 on a hillside from five loaves and two fish. They'd seen him walking on the water. They had seen him still the storm. They had seen him cast out demons from a guy. I mean, there were so many things they had seen with their own eyes, and yet this, this puts it in a completely different category. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is unique, and it's a one-off. It's the prototype. It's something that creates a difference for every single one of us because he paves the way and shows us what eternal life can really look like and how we can obtain that. There was one eyewitness who was a doubter. He was more than a doubter. He was a hater. He was an antagonist to Jesus Christ. Paul, also known as Saul, had had people arrested and thrown in jail and killed for the sake of Christ. That's why he would consider himself abnormally born as an apostle. That's why he said what he did in this passage when he said, and then Christ appeared to me, one abnormally born. Paul says, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last he appeared to me. Basically, his idea was this, if Jesus would appear to me, if he would atone for my sins, I, the worst of all sinners, then certainly you have that same grace available to you. A majority of Americans, I was a little shocked at what I saw, shocked in a good way, actually. A majority of the Americans in several polls done in the last few years are actually in favor of heaven, and they support it. They believe in some form of heaven. Now, what that heaven might be is up for grabs, depending on what you ask and how the poll might be worded. But over 70% in all three of these different polls, one, one poll it was up to around 76%. I've lowered it because I'm not going to give too many people the benefit of the doubt there, but they believe in some form of afterlife. And then there are other beliefs that include some form of life after this life, reincarnation, nirvana, where we're all sort of swallowed up into a hole that's greater than ourselves. There's some sort of release from this life, but it goes on into eternity. And there were only about 10 or 11% who said they didn't believe that, that they just believe that we're worm food. Once we're gone, we're gone when this body passes away, that's it. I think people want to believe that there is something after this life. And the reason I think that people ache for that is because we're wired that way. I think there's that that God-shaped void inside all of us that recognizes that we should be able to look forward to something after this life. Well, what is the meaning of Jesus' resurrection then if so many people have that Urge to believe in something that comes after this life. Well, we find this out. Life after death is defined by Jesus' resurrection. His is the prototype. It means that a new kind of life is indeed possible for you and me. It is possible. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not a legend. This really happened. And so it's defining for us that a new life is indeed possible. It means that any hope of a resurrection is tied to Jesus' resurrection. We can't just sort of believe in whatever we think we believe in, and somebody says, well, as long as you believe in something, that's great. We need to believe that Jesus' resurrection is what makes our resurrection possible, because his is unique in history. Jesus' resurrection is also tied to payment for sins, that atonement that we just talked about. So we need to make that A central part of our gospel message as well. We need to take this part of the gospel really seriously. There was sin. That's what separated us. Sin had to be atoned for. Jesus atoned for it. Now reconciliation is possible. That's the gospel message. That's the meaning of the resurrection. But there's a necessary step here. We need to admit that we need a Savior because God is such a gentleman that he refuses to force himself on us, because to do so would not allow our free will. We need to love him back freely. It's like George Bailey's prayers in It's a Wonderful Life. Some of you may have watched that over this last Christmas season. There are two different prayers. One was the dangerous one that he prayed when he said, God, show me the way. That was when his business was tanking. He had that uh, forgetful guy that kept tying little string and yarn on his fingers to try to remember stuff, and he misplaced that $8,000, which to them was huge, and then the bad guy, Mr. Potter, takes that and understands that this is his way to get back at them, so he knows it's going to result in jail and scandal, and it's going to be a terrible thing, so he's just distraught, and he says, God, show me the way. That's what results in God sending the angel down to start helping out. Some of that help that God sends might not look like the way that we expected it, but that's another story. And then there's that second prayer. That's after he started to see what life in that town would be like if he had not ever been born, because he had sort of said that, you know, I just wish I'd never been born. And that's where Clarence, the angel, gets the big idea, and he starts to show him what life would be like if he had never affected and influenced positively all these people. So then finally, there's that crucial time when he says, please, God, let me live. Everything changed. He admitted that he needed help. He admitted that he needed a savior. And in that instant, everything changed. Same thing happens sometimes in life-saving. They would train us to stay far enough away from a drowning victim that sometimes you need to wait until they have expended enough energy that they're not going to take you down with them, especially if they're bigger than you are. And I was pretty small when I was 16. So they would say if they're still struggling, they might try to grab a hold of you and they might even try to climb up on top of you because they're just desperate for air. But if they're climbing on top of you and if you're under the water and if you can't actually get them to safety, then you need to wait until they're really just about done. Sounds a little bit like the sheep we talked about, just about three weeks ago, I think, in our growth encounter time too. Anyway, those who are drowning, they need to admit that they need a savior and then they need to relax into the arms of the lifeguard. That's a problem. That's a problem for people in this uh, American, I'm my own person pulling myself up by my bootstraps, I can make my own way kind of mentality. It's an awful lot of that going on in America. And sometimes even well-meaning Christians really don't want to admit, I can't do this on my own. I desperately need help. I need a savior. That was Israel's problem. They kept trying to grasp everything they could find other than what they knew would be the real savior for them. And it kept getting them into trouble. Well, here's God's promise. He always follows through on his promises. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. That's that good shepherd's promise. Everybody who calls to him will receive an answer. But we have to cry out. We have to call to him and admit we need you. We have a choice. This is the truth. We see it all through the New Testament. We especially see it in Paul's writings. Eternal life is for everyone. We have to be careful to differentiate between eternal life and heaven and hell, because heaven is not available for everyone. Eternal life, yes, heaven only for those who admit they need a savior. Others will spend an eternity in absolute abject misery because it will be without the presence of God. It's as though we're gonna be given abundantly more what we long for on earth, abundantly more. If we long for heaven and what God promises us, if we long to be in his presence, to live under his protection and care and love, and without sin to mar the picture, we long for that restored new heaven and new earth where everything will be as it should be, the way it was originally intended. We're going to get that. We're going to get it abundantly more. We can't even imagine what he has in store for those who love him. But if we long to be our own guide or God, if we long to be our own autonomous being who chafes at the idea of any kind of a God who would tell us how we should live or not live, then we're going to get that. We're going to get what we want, and we're going to have it in spades, and it's not going to be pretty. Because when we try to do that, we alienate ourselves and we spiral into this pit of despair and self control. We finally have to admit at some point, I can't control everything. I can't even control myself. I desperately need a savior. So here's the good news, though God freely offers this abundant life, this eternal life, purely out of his love and grace, he offers it freely. He even offers it to the worst sinners imaginable. How do we know that? Because Paul said that. He says, I'm the worst. I consider myself the worst possible sinner. Look at all the things that I did prior to my conversion, and yet God saved me by his grace. And if he can do that for me, he can do it for anybody. That's the good news. Joy and I had a chance to visit the city of New Orleans back in 1985. And it was the same year, unfortunately, that there was a tragedy in the news. There was a pool party in a municipal pool similar to the one that I took my lifeguard training in back when I was a junior lifeguard. And this pool party was at the end of the swimming season. There were over 200 people there gathered at this municipal pool. Over half of them were lifeguards. What were they celebrating? It was the first drowning free year in their memory. But while they were celebrating their achievements, their accomplishments, while they were celebrating all the skills and their training that had manifested itself into a drowning free year, one of the guests of one of the lifeguards who was fully dressed and had not been swimming fell into the pool and drowned. They lost focus. Kind of reminds me of that church in Corinth They would gather for parties, didn't have anything to do with what their real message was about. That's why Paul starts to go through all these correctives. And then he gets to this chapter and he says, don't forget your focus. (laughs) This is the main thing. Jesus died on a cross as an atonement for your sins. And he rose again to conquer the worst enemy possible, the enemy of death. And that defines everything for us. That's how you can look forward to a resurrection of your own, strictly through Jesus, but you've got to admit that you need a savior. And we as a church must be vigilant. We cannot relax and start congratulating ourselves for being super righteous and better than those other sinners out there. Church can be like that party. We dare not forget our primary purpose. We cannot lose our focus. There's so many people who are lost and floundering, and drowning in their own self-doubt, in their own human philosophy, in whatever they might be drowning in, they need people to say, God loves you. He loves you just like you are right now. He's going to take you from where you are, he's going to rescue you, and he's going to transform you into his image. Then, once they start to relax into his care, he'll start making some changes. But sometimes we get out of calter and we start trying to change everybody from the outside in, whereas God wants to change people from the inside out. We need to simply love them. Point them to the one who can make those changes and let him do the changing. Paul Gordon understood this message. Paul Gordon is a Michiganian, was a Michiganian. He's in heaven now. You may understand when I say GFS, what that stands for, what the last name refers to, It's Gordon Food Service. Well, Paul Gordon's grandparents started delivering eggs and butter out in western Michigan to people in a horse-drawn cart back in 1897. The food delivery service grew to become GFS, based in Grand Rapids. Ben Gordon took over after his dad, the founder, and then Ben's son, Paul, took over in 1965. Under Paul Gordon's leadership, the company grew from having just a few hundred, just (laughs) a few hundred employees to having over 10,000 employees. Paul continued as president until 1991, when one of his sons, Dan, took over that role. And I also found out that the reason Paul Gordon was such a successful businessman is because he went to the University of Michigan. <laughs> Go Blue. In 2008, Paul, who had not been president for a few years because his son Dan was at the helm, but Paul Sr. at that time, knew he was dying of cancer. And Paul wanted to communicate to all the employees of GFS what he knew to be the most important message of all. And so a week after Easter in 2008, Paul wrote a letter to everyone working for the company. He thanked them for their good work and for their prayers and support of his family since his diagnosis. And then he concluded that letter with this paragraph. I'm quoting from him right now. While the outlook for my time here on earth is not long, please rest assured that my outlook for eternity is secure. I do not say that because of anything that I've achieved from an earthly perspective. The only reason I can speak so confidently is because of God's grace. The Bible says that we all fall short of God's standards. I'm only made right with God because the penalty that belongs to me was paid by Jesus. That's what we celebrated just last Sunday, he says, because that was the week after Easter. Jesus conquered sin and death and the grave when he rose from the dead. It's my desire and my prayer that each of you, remember this is to all of his employees, that each of you would come to experience that grace and have the same assurance of where you will spend eternity. Paul got it. (laughs) Paul Gordon understood what this most important message was, and he used even his dying breath, practically, to share that message because he knew that was the most important message he could communicate before he went to heaven himself. Five weeks later, after he sent that letter, he got to see and experience the eternal life he was looking forward to because of God's grace. So let me ask you, does your worldview include this most important message that Paul the Apostle has told us we need to focus on? Does it include Jesus' death and burial and resurrection? Does it include looking forward to a life in God's presence so that we long for eternity? If so, that can be the heart of the gospel for you. And if you're a Christian, this should be the heart of the gospel. This should be what you cling to for your hope, eternal hope. And if you don't have that yet, I want you to know God still freely extends his hand to you. He freely offers this grace gift to everybody who will accept it. All you have to do is admit that you need it and then relax into the arms of the one who will rescue you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in these quiet moments your Holy Spirit will be at work in such a powerful way in the lives of people who hear this most important message. And that if there's somebody right now who is taking that step and reaching out to you, that you'll grab a hold of them, that you'll carry them to safety, that you'll wrap them up in your care, your loving arms, that you'll give them the breath of life that you'll breathe new life into them as they die to self and sin and as they're made into a new creation because of what Jesus did for them on the cross. And I pray that they will feel your presence so strongly and that they'll come to know that presence by reading your word more diligently since you speak so powerfully and you change us through your word. And I pray that they'll surround themselves with other believers So they too can walk that journey together, not because any of us are any better than anybody else, because we're all just saved sinners. And I thank you that you offer so freely this gift of salvation. I thank you that you forgive sin, no matter what that sin might be. And that you promise everybody who calls on you will have that eternal life. Thank you for that. Thank you for changing lives for all those who are tuned in, whose lives have already been changed. And I pray, Father, that there will be many, many more as a result of our making Jesus more clear to those around us, many, many more people who will reach out and admit that they need that same Savior so that together we'll have a great reunion one day when we're gathered in your presence. Thank you for all you do for us, And thank you that we get to celebrate that together in worship. We love you back. In Jesus' name I pray.